Hey everyone, welcome back. Laszlo Montgomery here with China History Podcast, episode 248, part 5 of this History of Xinjiang series. We're still early in the game. The people living out in these oasis cities and kingdoms at this time in its history are still predominantly Indo-European and Indo-Iranic people, as it had been for the past several thousand years. The Turks haven't shown up yet, and Islam no, the prophet won't be born till 570, towards the end of the northern and southern dynasties period. But don't worry, Islam will make its way to the basins of Xinjiang, and that'll be it for Buddhism and Manichaeism in this part of the world. Last time we took a quick glance at a few of the kingdoms of the southern and eastern part of the Tarim Basin. And as advertised last episode, we're going to finish off with one more important kingdom, and then we'll move on to the arrival of the Gurkturks. But before we do that, let me just add something I wanted to try and squeeze in last episode in part four, but decided to let it slide till this one. This wasn't exclusive to Turpan, but it was one other thing about the place that I found terribly interesting and worth mentioning. This was the famous Karez Canal System they invented all those centuries ago, way before Zhang Qian and the Han Chinese, or even the Xiongnu. I mentioned these kanats, or kares, in the old Silk Road series I did from way back when. These kares, or kanats, were these underground aqueducts that were first designed by Iranian engineers as much as 3,000 years ago. Turpan was a thriving city, but they didn't have any of the great rivers that allowed places like Hotan, Kashgar, Kucha, Lolan, and other oasis kingdoms to grow and prosper. Its location was close to the mountains, but there was no convenient river that the melting snows had carved out like in all those other places that might bring life to a city. How to get that meltwater to ancient Jushir? Well, homo sapiens of this region with their vertical foreheads and extra large brains figured out a workaround. These ancient civil engineers devised a brilliant system that utilized the power of gravity to bring water from the mountains to the settled lands below, where one could support agriculture and human life. They dug an underground horizontal tunnel that would link up with the water table, and then perpendicular to this underground horizontal tunnel would be a series of wells. And the distinguishing feature of the kanats would be these well, if you saw them, they looked like big molehills or these mini volcanoes that stretched along the aqueducts that were constructed. And you would just drop your bucket or whatever down these wells, and you'd be able to get as much fresh, cool mountain water as you needed. And it could be 100 degrees in Turpan, but that water below the surface was just as cold as it was when it melted. The Kanat system is still around today, and aside from providing water to the cities around Turpan, it provides plenty of employment to locals to maintain them and keep them from clogging up. And one other thing before we move on. Uh, one of the other top attractions of Turpan are the Huoyanshan, or Flaming Mountains, just to the east of Turpan. Mother Nature did a real nice job in the artistic way these red sandstone hills were eroded into these really cool shapes. This Little corner of Xinjiang is one of the hottest spots in all of China, regularly getting up to the 120s. The Chinese city of Gaochang was built not too far from the foot of these flaming mountains. And this little mountain range got its name from the color of the mountains when the 
sun hit them a certain way. Anyway, I'm only mentioning this because this place was immortalized in chapter 60 of the Xiyou Ji, Journey to the West, one of the four great classical novels of China. There's a whole story of Sun Wukong, the Monkey King, and his adventures in these flaming mountains, all part of the lore of this Turpan culture and history. Okay, let's leave the Turpan Basin and return to the Tarim Basin and look at uh, one more important and once great ancient city. This was Kucha. Kucha, or Chiotsu, I mentioned it in part three. This is where Banyong, son of Banchao, set up the Han Protectorate. Kucha was one of the cities along the northern route of the Silk Road, right on a major tributary of the Tarim River. Kucha, like all the cities mentioned before, We'll keep hearing them over and over throughout this series. Is that's where all the action takes place in Xinjiang's long history. This place had a very strong Indian and Buddhist tradition. Kucha, in particular, was noted in history as a cultural wonderland. It became famous throughout China for its music, dance, and most importantly, as one of the leading Buddhist centers in China. The people of Kucha were Indo-European and spoke one of the Tokarian languages, called Kuchian. Kucha is always referred to in history books as an ancient Buddhist kingdom. Kuchin monks had been bringing Buddhist teachings to China from India and Central Asia since the 3rd century, 200 years after Buddhism had first trickled into China during the 1st century CE, and a good 500 years after Siddhartha Gautama's time on this earth. Kucha's most famous son, I'm thinking it would have to be Kumarajiva, who the Chinese knew as Jumoloshi. He lived from 344 to 413, right smack dab in the middle of the 16 kingdoms period. His parents were both extremely devout Buddhists. During the mid-4th century, as a youngster, Kumarajiva's mother took him to Kashmir, a major Buddhist center back then, where he remained for a year, no doubt, learning from the best. Age 12, he journeyed up to Turpan. There, he continued his Buddhist education, and over the course of his early life, this prodigy became renowned throughout the land for his insight and for his translations and interpretation of the Buddhist sutras from their original Sanskrit to Chinese. And so great became his renown that in the year 379, Kumarajiva's fame and repute reached the former Qin imperial court in Chang'an. And this king of former Qin was one of those occasional rulers who took to Buddhism in a very big way and became a kind of sponsor who used his authority and power to blow a huge gust of wind into the sails of Buddhism's propagation into China proper. The king had somehow heard of Kumarajiva and wanted to, I don't know, I guess, have him for himself. So he called upon one of his warriors to lead an expedition out west to Xinjiang, to Kucha, to locate this renowned Buddhist monk and bring him back to the capital in Chang'an. This is the story of Liu Guang. Now, if Liu Guang's name doesn't ring a bell, he's perhaps better known as Emperor Yiwu, founder of the later Liang Dynasty. He came from the Di people, one of these Wuhu barbarians. More about that in a minute. A quick word first about the former Qin. They were one of these so-called 16 kingdoms that existed up in the northernmost part of China, 304 to 439. 
fall of the Western Jin to the unification of North China under the Northern Wei, who we mentioned at the end of last episode, the Xianbei dynasty, who were the on-again, off-again foes of the Roran. The Sixteen Kingdoms is the period we're entering now, part of the messy and complicated period between the Han and the Sui. The former Qin had their day in the sun in 376, when they unified North China into one entity. However, the dynasty was kaput by 394. Other than maintaining their capital at Chang'an, they had nothing in common with the Qin dynasty of 221 BCE and Qin Shi Huang fame. So let's get back to our story. In the year 383, the former Qin emperor sent Liu Guang on this mission to go bring Kumarajiva back to Chang'an, and if he could conquer any of these Silk Road trading kingdoms and turn on the tribute spigot, yeah, all the better. So in an age-old tradition, Liu Guang led 100,000 troops to the western region. Liu Guang made his way to Kucha and with an overwhelming show of force, got them to submit to his king in former Qin, and in the process, Liu Guang accumulated massive amounts of booty and tribute. He was able to track down Kumarajiva, he wasn't a difficult person to find, and he took this famous monk into custody, and though Liu Guang was not a practitioner of Buddhism, he kept his prized possession close to his chest. But in the midst of this mission, the former Qin dynasty collapsed and broke up into three pieces. And Liu Guang figured, well, seeing how the political situation had taken such a drastic turn, well, there was no need to rush back to Chang'an and deliver Kumarajiva. So he continued to hold on to him, and riding so high in the saddle like he was, this is when Liu Guang began having these ambitious thoughts about maybe getting his own dynasty up and running. And in 386, he did just that, and he founded the later Liang Dynasty. The lands of the later Liang were located in good old Gansu province, with its capital at Guzang, which is today's city of Wuwei, Hexi Corridor Country. It was written that so great were the riches Liu Guang had seized in Kucha, he needed 20,000 camels to transport it all back east. Anyway, Liu Guang, or Emperor Yi Wu, he didn't get to enjoy being the founding emperor for too long and died in 400. And his three sons, like with most of these dynasties of the 16 kingdoms, couldn't hold the family enterprise together for too long. It only took a few years after the death of the founder, and that was it for the later Liang. You know, there are so many Liang dynasties in ancient Chinese history. Besides this one, the later Liang of 386 to 403, there were others. Liang State from the spring and autumn period, the former Liang that preceded Liu Guang's later Liang. There was also the southern, northern, and western Liang, and another western Liang from the northern and southern dynasties, and a second later Liang that followed the fall of the Tang dynasty. Different character Liang, though. You need to keep a cheat sheet folded up in your wallet to keep them straight. I'm sure it won't surprise you to know that the former Qin dynasty was followed by the later Qin dynasty. And this dynasty, too, had another great and historic champion of Buddhism whose embrace of this faith was so strong. Under his sponsorship, nearly all the lands of later Qin adopted Buddhism. This was the heavenly king, Yao Xing. He reigned 394 to 416, and he, too, was hot to get Kumarajiva in his capital. And despite all the 
polite requests and urgency, he couldn't get the later Liang to give Kumarajiva up. So Heavenly King Yao Xing got tired of waiting, and he sent a team to go snatch Kumarajiva, who was still being held by the descendants of Liu Guang. And in 401, they went in and took him. And these later Qin soldiers brought the famous Kumarajiva to Chang'an. There he got as big and enthusiastic a welcome as the Fab Four did when they landed at JFK 1,563 years later. He was the toast of the town, and with the later Qin heavenly king, Yao Xing, as his benefactor, Kumarajiva was able to give Buddhism in China one gargantuan great leap forward. He ushered in what can be called China's first golden age of Buddhism, 5th century CE. His work as a translator is legendary. Kumarajiva is credited with being perhaps the first translator of both the Diamond and Lotus Sutras. If you remember from past CHP episodes, you no doubt remember how Confucianism had become institutionalized during the Han Dynasty. And then after the Han fell, it was Buddhism's turn to take China by storm amongst the masses and within the imperial court. And starting right about here, those two entities, Confucianism and Buddhism, well, they had a heck of a rivalry that lasted clear through to the remainder of Chinese imperial history. And when this giant of Buddhism, Kumarajiva, after he left Chang'an and made his triumphant return back to Kucha after his time in China, he had rock star status. In his own day, he was wildly popular and revered for his teachings and his mastery of this religion and way of life. Contemporary with Kumarajiva, or Jomoloshe, was one of the other renowned Buddhist monks of this time who wandered all throughout Xinjiang. This was the Jin Dynasty adventurer monk Fa Xian, like Huo Qubing and Wei Qing, the conquering generals for Han Wu Di. The monk Fa Xian also came from historic Linfan City in Shanxi Province. I mention the Jin Dynasty monk because contemporaneous with the 16 kingdoms was the Eastern Jin. Should have been called the Southern Jin because the Han rulers of the founding Sima family had evacuated their capital up in Chang'an and fled south to Jiankang, modern-day Nanjing. And as I said, the north of China was abandoned to these Wuhu, or five barbarian tribes who brought us the 16 kingdoms. So Fa Xian came from this part of China. Now we remember Fa Xian for his pilgrimage to the west between 399 and 412, where he sought out Buddhist scriptures that he might study and bring back to China. Fa Xian had set out in the year 399 and passed through Xinjiang that same year. Over the next 13 years, he traveled to India, Sri Lanka, and Java. Just as he left Dunhuang and wandered beyond the Jade Gate into Xinjiang, Fa Xian had written of these lands this way, quote, Amidst these rivers of sand are evil spirits and hot winds. All who encounter them perish. No birds fly above, no beasts walk below. One gazes all around as far as the eye can see, hoping to find a place to cross, but can choose none. The bleached bones of the dead provide the only sign. End quote. Fa Xian, he walked a whole route, the Silk Rose, and he passed through all of these places I've mentioned and wrote about them. 
And today, a lot of what we hang our hat on as far as the history of Xinjiang during that first golden age of Buddhism, fourth and fifth centuries, comes from Faxian and his book that miraculously managed to survive into our time. After he returned to China, Faxian settled down in Nanjing in 412 and wrote a travelogue of his journeys called A Record of Buddhist Kingdoms. Good old Ji. I will have a link at the show notes of the English text of Faxian's book, courtesy of the great people at Project Gutenberg. Faxian wasn't the first to make these kinds of pilgrimages. I mentioned Kumarajiva went to Kashmir, but Faxian was the first to make it all the way to India and bring back all of these Buddhist scriptures to China. It was already a thing for many of the faithful to visit these lands closer to the source from where Buddhism sprang. Faxian is the most famous one from this time, and how his book managed to survive into our day is nothing short of a miracle. It provides eyewitness accounts of so many of these places in Xinjiang that we've looked at so far. Many more Buddhist faithful followed Faxian in these travels from China to India and back, following the Silk Road trade routes that have been around since the 2nd century BCE. And starting right about here, in the 4th and 5th centuries, anyone riding their camel along these Silk Roads would encounter just as many Buddhist pilgrims as Sogdian traders. In the beginning, the Silk Roads began as trading routes. But now it was also this human highway where Buddhist pilgrims traveled these east-west pathways that had brought distant civilizations together for centuries and facilitated the dissemination of Buddhism and heaven only knows how many other good ideas and innovations. When we get to the 7th century and the commencement of the Tang Dynasty, we'll take a look at another of the celebrated monk adventurers of ancient China. This was Xuanzang, immortalized in the Da Tang Xi Yu Ji, the great Tang records of the Western regions. And that mid-7th century book, it became the main inspiration for the classic novel Xi Yu Ji, Journey to the West. Our Xinjiang story really starts to take off when we get to the Sui and Tang dynasties. But before we get there, we have to first talk about the biggest player of them all to date to enter the Xinjiang space. These were the Turks. Now, most of you already know the official name today of this land we're discussing is the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. And it's well known that the Uyghurs are Turks. But what are they doing in Xinjiang, so far away from Turkey? Well, there's more to the Turks than Turkey and the Turkish people who live there. Those modern-day Turks only arrived in Anatolia, or Asia Minor, around the 11th century with the rise of the Seljuk Turks. Before the Turkish people began populating the Anatolian Peninsula, there were the Hittites, Assyrians, Alexander the Great, the Eastern Roman Empire, and many others. Not so well known, well, around these parts at least, is that the most ancient homeland of the Turks is Central Asia. And they came from an area often referred to as Turkestan. These are the lands of present-day Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, Azerbaijan, and, of course, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. The term Turk 
can refer to both the Turkish people of the great nation of Turkey and also for the Turkic people who are ethnic Turks, but not necessarily Turkish. In history books, sometimes the term is differentiated to T-U-R-K for the nation of Turkey and the Turkish people and T-U-R-K with the umlaut over the U for the Turkic people who all share that common origin, somewhere unknown, but surely on the great Eurasian steppe. And just as it is with practically all of these nomadic people who lived between Manchuria and the Caspian Sea, no one knows with absolute certainty where the original homeland is for the Turks, except to say it was somewhere in Mongolia, or maybe just west of there. Up to now, we've been talking about the inhabitants in Xinjiang who were Indo-European, who spoke Indo-European languages. Well, the language of the Turks came from the Altaic branch, same as the Mongols, and Japanese and Korean also got thrown into this branch of leftover languages from north of the Altai Mountains. As I mentioned before, it's thought that perhaps the Xiongnu were a Turkic people, but alas, no smoking gun found yet. These various Turkic tribes, they had rather humble beginnings as one of those tribes under the political thumb of the Roran Kaganit. The official histories say that these Turks served the Roran nation as blacksmiths and metalworkers, makers of weapons. There wasn't one single tribe of Turks. They were spread out in various parts of Central Asia. But the ones we're most concerned about are the Gurkturks, or Gokturks, as they were called in my old high school history class. They were also known as the Blue Turks, Sky Turks, and the Celestial Turks. The Chinese called them the Tujue. These Gurkturks, they were the ones who plowed the Roran under. And like the Xiongnu, Xianbei, and Roran, they too had their charismatic strongman who united them and drove them to greatness. And this person was Bumin Kagan. In Mandarin, he was known as Yili Kehan. He had been the one to organize his people, build an army, and when the time was right, he led this army to victory over the Roran. This was in 552. And right after tasting victory, Bumin died. He came from the Asher Na tribe. And this group, it was sort of like what the Isengeros were to the Qing, the ruling house, the aristocrats of the Turks. Most of these Turkic leaders and soldiers who I'll be mentioning all came from this Asher Na tribe. And like these other conquering people of Mongolia and Central Asia, this nation builder's progeny carried the torch forward, and before long, the Gurk Turks were the dominant power, stretching from Manchuria in the east, all the way to the Black Sea, which, as you know, were more or less the same lands once conquered by the Xiongnu and Xianbei, not to mention others to follow. Next up for the Gurk Turks, after putting away the Roran, were the Heptalites, in and around Bactria, between the Amudarya in the north and the Hindu Kush in the south. And they were dealt a defeat in 557, five years after the death of Bumen. As far as Chinese history goes, the watershed year came 24 years later in the familiar year of 581, the year Yang Jian founded the Sui dynasty. The Sui it didn't last terribly long, but Yang Jian was credited with uniting China following a rough 
three and a half centuries of the Three Kingdoms, the Jin, the Sixteen Kingdoms, and the Northern and Southern Dynasties. Yang Jian, who we also remember as the founding emperor Sui Wen-Di, was a master manipulator when it came to the Gurk Turks. The first Turkic Kaganat that Buman had created only took about 25 years before the infighting started to tear things apart from within. This was from 552 to 581. And when Yang Jian was putting the final touches on his new dynasty, he resorted to the always effective, tried-and-true political tactic of taking advantage of internal political divisions amongst the Gurk Turks and playing one side off against the other and inserting himself into their struggle. The Gurk Turks were a much more powerful group militarily than what Sui Wendi had at that moment, but he was as familiar as anyone about this menace to the north, and he knew how to rile them up to his advantage. The upshot to this was a civil war that broke out amongst the Gurk Turks, and it resulted in the empire splitting up into two easier-to-manage Kaganets, the Eastern and Western, the Dong and Shi Tujie, the Eastern and Western Turks. The Eastern Turkic Kaganet was sort of primus inter pares between the two, and their leader was called the Kagan, or, or emperor. Their territory stretched from Manchuria to western Mongolia and was ruled by the descendants of Buman's Ashurna house. In the western Turkic Kaganate, the one we're more concerned with, well, that was ruled by the descendants of Buman's brother, Ishtani. Ishtani had been sent west by Buman to manage that part of the new empire, and it was this brother of Buman, who had teamed up with the Sassanid Persians to put the Heptalites away in 557. Now, in the Western Kaganet, their leader was not called the Kagan. His title was the Yabgu, or in Chinese, the Yehu. They were mostly based in present-day Kazakhstan. Now, as the power of the Gurk Turks increased, and with the Roran and Heptalites out of the way, that allowed these Western Turks to become the next hegemon of the Tarim Basin, which allowed them to feast on all that wealth that emanated from those kingdoms. These Silk Road Oasis states, they never caught a break. These Western Turks wasted no time in muscling in on all the Silk Road trade and getting a piece of all that action. So Ishtani was the first Yabgo of the West, and his son Tardu, or Tardush, was the second, beginning in 575. And not long after Yang Jian founded the Sui dynasty, the Kagan in the east died, followed by the inevitable power struggle. And once this happened, Tardu, over in the western Kaganate, saw an opening to get a leg up on the eastern Gurk Turks. When they were busy dealing with their new leadership issues, Tardu sent an emissary to Yang Jian, Emperor Wen of Sui, and then Tardu cozied up to Sui, China. And Yang Jian, as I said, never one to miss an opportunity, used this new relationship or alliance and inserted himself into Gurk-Turk politics and was able to manipulate the two sides again to the advantage of his budding dynasty. So right here, I guess you could say in the 580s, is where the Turks start to exert some influence in Chinese politics and vice versa. And to the China imperial court, these Turks began to have a few good uses. And over the next century or so, the Turks and Chinese 
sort of develop a kind of symbiotic relationship for a while. And the relationship was by no means limited to just politics. These Gurkturks, they had a hell of a culture, and did it ever take northern China by storm, especially among the aristocracy and elites. During the Tang Dynasty, Turkish culture was all the rage, and for good reason, too. Before we move on to Li Yuan, Li Shermin, and the Tang Dynasty that they co-founded, let's look at the Sui and the western part of their empire. Like the Han Empire, the geography of the Sui also had that narrow panhandle shape extending west through the Hexi Corridor all the way into the easternmost portion of the Tarim Basin. I'm only discussing the matter of the Gurkturks north and west of China. The Gurkturks had quite an empire by this time and with marauding armies that fought all the way to Persia and Byzantium. So just keep in mind, I'm only mentioning about the China part of the uh, Gurkturks. There's much we can say about the Sui dynasty. Uh, unified China, uh, Grand Canal, enhancing the Chinese military, stabilizing the food supply, and their embrace of Buddhism. But just as important, perhaps, one of the greatest achievements of the Sui was in digging and pouring the foundation of the Tang dynasty. The Sui dynasty... It wasn't the longest lasting of dynasties, but after three and a half hard centuries for China, these two Sui rulers, Wen and Yang, got the nation all set up and ready for the good times to roll. On that note, let us take that well-worn bookmark and stick it in right here. We'll start off strong next episode with the Tang Dynasty and China's triumphant return to Xinjiang. You won't want to miss that, I'm sure. Please consider supporting this long-running family program that has brought more than 150 hours of Chinese history content to your PLD, your podcast listening device, for going on 10 years. Three bucks a month is all it'll cost you at Patreon. I already have a whole bunch of crazy stories in there from the non-CHP side of my surreal life, with more to come plus early access to shows, if you're so inclined. Patreon.com China History Podcast. I'll make it easy for you and just put the link in the show notes. And while I'm at it, I'll also put a link to the official CHP PayPal Donation Center at paypal.me slash China History Podcast. For those of you who, you know, don't want to do the whole Patreon thing, who just want to, you know, throw me a few lira and be done with it. I thank you in advance and trust me, you'll get a personal thank you from me when you donate. Okay. Keep your masks on, everyone, and your latex gloves close by. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California, wishing you all the best and praying for your safety, because I care, and because I'm hoping you'll come back in two weeks' time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.